Now that David is king over the Israeli nation, the Philistines are concerned that they might attempt to reacquire some of Israel's territory, which had been lost to the Philistines. Fearful of this possibility, the Philistines take an aggressive move for war, hoping that David could not consolidate his forces against them in time. This is the tenth sermon in the series, Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. Our old covenant reading coming from Second Samuel in chapter 5, beginning now in verse 12 through the end of the chapter, verse 25. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, And David perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom For his people, Israel's sake. And David took him more concubines and wives out of Jerusalem after he was come from Hebron. And there were yet sons and daughters born to David. And these be the names of those that were born unto him in Jerusalem. Shemua and Shobab and Nathan and Solomon. Ippar also and Elishua and Nepheg and Japhia and Elishma, and Elida, and Elaphalet. But when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines came up to seek David. And David heard of it and went down to the hold. The Philistines also came and spread themselves in the valley of Repham. And David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to the Philistines? Wilt thou deliver them into mine hand? And the Lord said unto David, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into thine hand. David came to Baal Perizim, and David smote them there, and said, The Lord hath broken forth upon mine enemies before me, as the breach of waters. Therefore called he the name of that place Baal Perizim. And there they left their images, and David and his men burned them. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread themselves in the valley of Repham. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, Thou shalt not go up, but fetch a compass behind them, and come upon them over against the mulberry trees. And let it be, when thou hearest the sound of a going in the tops of the mulberry trees, that then thou shalt bestir thyself, for then shall the Lord go out before thee to smite the host of the Philistines. And David did so, as the Lord had commanded him, and smote the Philistines from Geba until thou come to Gezer. Paul writes to the church at Rome, in Romans in chapter 8, beginning in verse 35 through verse 37. With the same spirit, the apostle says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, as it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. David is now king, and as king, 
His first official act of supremacy is to build the house of God. This was also the mission of the Christ. Jesus was called to build his house. But unlike David's house, the house of God would be made up of real people. And so, unlike the physical concrete structure of David's house, the Lord's house was to be made of flesh and blood, an organism rather than a visible institution. Now, once David had completed his task of purifying an army of warriors, he is coronated as king in the same way that Jesus purifies his army of soldiers by his atonement. Jesus then, like David, empowers his army with authority and power. Jesus does it at Pentecost by his spirit in order to assist him in the building of the temple of God, the church of the living God. And this is exactly what David is doing as he himself represents the Lord Jesus. He is building the house of God. And so in his passion, in which is that's what David had, David was passionate for the things of God. He would build the house of God as soon as he was king. And so in his passion, for the glory of God, David confederates, as you remember, with faithful Hiram, to build the temple of God at Jerusalem. We read that in verse 11 of chapter 5 of Second Samuel. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David and house. Now in David's wisdom, he federates with another God-fearing man who loved the Lord and who loved David and employs all the talents of his carpenters and masons to complete the work of the kingdom. David understood one thing that many of us need to understand, and that is that the work, because the work of the kingdom is so huge and so comprehensive and so big, David understood that the work of building God's house could not be done by one man alone. It takes teamwork. It takes a community of people to complete the task. And David understood that. We see this even not only in the practical realm of reality, but we even see this idea of teamwork in the ontology of God, as well as the economic practicality of the Gospel Commission. Let me explain. Ontologically, in the Godhead, within the Godhead, within the Godhead of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit work together in unity, teamwork, as one unit to effectuate the plan of kingdom conquest. It's not just God the Father alone, or God God the Son alone, or God the Holy Spirit alone. No, the three of them work in concert. Economically, Christ employs his body to work as one on earth in order to effectuate the actual kingdom conquest. So, understanding that he was working in concert within the Godhead, Christ calls each and every one of us to work in concert with one another and with Christ as one. And these are dramatic lessons for us. In other words, kingdom work will never be accomplished and it can never be completed by a single individual, not even a king like David. It takes work. If you think about your family, even in your family, if your family does not work together, that family is dysfunctional. So in order to build the kingdom of God, It takes the entire body of Christ. Christ as the head and as the master builder, along with his organic church, his body of carpenters and masons joined together to build the house of God. And this is how the apostle saw himself and all of the people of God all together as co-laborers building the house of God. There's no one that gets to sit on the sidelines. No one can be a pew warmer. Everyone needs to be involved in the work of the kingdom. 
the Lord Jesus Christ, the King, commissions the church, the carpenters and the masons, if you will, under the oversight of Hiram, perhaps representing, as we saw last time, the Holy Spirit, who works and wills in us to accomplish the pleasure of God, to come together, to unify, and to be gathered together as one to complete the work of the kingdom. And this is how the kingdom is built, and how the battle is to be waged as well. We have to work together. Now the next thing that David does is he takes more wives and concubines. And it is here where we might see a crack in the fidelity of David's armor, since he was forbidden by God's law to do such a thing. And this too is a lesson for us. Even the smallest disregard for the commandments of the Lord, especially for those who hold power and influence, can lead to total humiliation and depending upon the circumstances, perhaps even destruction. Even if that disregard, as it was in David's case, has pure motives, a disregard for the commandments of God is most certainly not the better part of wisdom. Even if we think, well, I can do this and this is a good reason, but it's a violation of the commandments of God, even though there might be good motivation and the end looks like it's a good thing, the way you get there by disobeying the Lord is wrong. So even if that disregard is pure motivation, to disregard the commandments of God is not the better part of wisdom. Now once David perceived that the Lord was with him, he might have surmised that he was either above the law of God, or that he could be given special privileges in spite of the law. If this is the case, it's very sad. He was not above the law, nor did he have any special privileges which would make him above the law. But notice in verse 12 and 13, And David perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that the Lord had exalted his kingdom for his people Israel's sake. Therefore, seeing, if I might comment and add, therefore seeing that I am so blessed of God, God has established me as king over Israel, I have had God's kingdom exalted for the people of God, I think this is a great time to take to myself wives and concubines out of Jerusalem. That was a wrong move. But we have to ask now, why would David do this? Now, should we write him off as being a proud man like Saul, full of arrogant pride and a total disregard for God's law? Well, I don't don't think so. I don't think the scriptures at all portray him in this light in any way, shape, or form. Even though he has taken wives and concubines, which he was told not to do. But then why would he do that? Well, the only answer that seems possible is that He was trying to build a godly dynastic kingdom so that, under David, so that there would no longer be any threat of apostasy by another soul. Previously, each of the judges of Israel, during the last days of the judges especially, they had tried this very same thing, but to no avail. God had frustrated their plans of dynastic kingdom continuity, and David knew that. In spite of that, David may have surmised that since he was ordained by Samuel to reestablish the honor of God and the house of God and the law of God and Israel's unity under God, he was called to build a godly dynasty through the work of the Davidic kingdom. And so while his motives might have been sincere, his actions were nevertheless unlawful. 
Now that the challenge of building the Lord's house is at an end, God provides another testing scenario for King David by stirring up the Philistines once again. We read this in verse 17. But when the Philistines heard that they anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines came up to seek David, and David heard of it and went down to the hold. Note how the Philistines were stirred by the news that David had been anointed king over Israel. Now he's the king over the 12 tribes. No longer tribal, no longer with just the southern tribes, but now the entire nation. The Philistines had already been fooled by David to the extent that while David was on the run from Saul, the king of Gath had trusted him to the point of making him his personal bodyguard. But David never sought for the well-being of the Philistines. He rather had deceived them. He duped them into believing that he was on their side in order to gain an advantage over them. He deceived God's enemies in order to destroy God's enemies, which is a very, very crafty tactic. Now that he is king, in order to vindicate themselves, the Philistines rise up and gather themselves together against David and his newly founded nation. But there's another reason why the Philistines were stirred up on hearing of David's new position. Adam Clark explains that up until this time, the Philistines had secured land holdings in some of Israel's strategic places and were secure from any encroachment by Israel as long as they were divided. But once Israel was united, once the Philistines heard that David was anointed king, they were afraid. They now feared that he might try to take back the land for the glory of God. They had taken dominion from the Israelites. Now they were afraid that David was going to reclaim dominion because now he was king. Note Clark's explanation. He says, Ever since the defeat of the Israelites and the fall of Saul and his sons, the Philistines seem to have been in undisturbed possession of the principal places in the land of Israel. In other words, they had dominion of all the great things in the world. Finding that David was chosen king by the whole nation, they thought best to attack him before his army got too numerous. In other words, before his army was too strong. And the affairs of the kingdom were properly settled. Note the unity of this pagan nation. Note what the scripture says. All the Philistines, every one of them, remember there were five kings in the Philistine nation. Every one of those kings, every one of those men gathered themselves together so that all of the Philistines had come up to seek David, to begin to come against David, in other words. The Reverend Philip Long observes, he says, news that David had been anointed king over Israel does not please the Philistines. They had tolerated his rule over Judah from Hebron, but this further strengthening of David's position required a response, so they went up in full force. Now the entire nation of the Philistines is gathered and galvanized together around one enemy, and that enemy is David. Now this is also a lesson for us. The Philistines had a common enemy, which rallied them together as one man against the one man that had been their adversary for so long, and who had single-handedly infiltrated their camp, not once, but twice. Christendom, I submit to you that Christendom must once again be galvanized against its common enemy, the secular, pluralistic, pagan, polytheistic, God-hating libertines. Problem is, sadly, the church is still fighting amongst itself. 
Once the enemy is established and Christendom is once again unified as one man with the help of God, we can then go before our enemies with complete confidence that we will defeat them and take dominion back. But rest assured that as the church begins to solidify its power, the enemies of Christ will, like the Philistines, gather themselves together against her more vehemently, even in the same way that the Philistines gathered themselves against David. So as we begin to flex our muscles, which we have and which we must, the secular state will begin gathering itself together against us. But know what they are afraid of. What were the Philistines afraid of? Well, they were afraid that David would reclaim the areas of power from the Philistines. They wanted to retain their power. They don't want Christians in Congress. They don't want Christians in the White House or in the Senate or anywhere that there's a place of power. So they will galvanize themselves so that the Christians can never take dominion over these places of power and influence. Wicked men are afraid of this very thing. They are fearful, they are fearful that the Lord Jesus Christ, who claims legitimate controlling dominion rights over the entire earth, will once again reclaim the land using the Christians. You see, what's curious about the wicked men of this world is that they understand dominion. They understand dominion. Christians don't understand dominion. Wicked men understand dominion. But too many Christians do not. So they give over dominion instead of claiming dominion which is legitimately belonging to Christ. Whenever the church claims dominion rights for the crown rights of the Christ, rest assured, the enemy will fight back. And this is one of the reasons why too many fearful churches with milk-toast preachers and heretical theologians refuse to take back the land for the glory of Christ the King. They're afraid of the blowback. So they'll tolerate all kinds of wickedness. They don't want to get involved in politics. They just want to hide out. Because they're afraid. Fear is a very motivating factor. And as a result, they remain a conquered, slavish people without any hope of realizing their covenant mandate of dominion victory that the Lord has promised them in His covenant oath. A God who cannot lie has promised victory for us. Now consider the Philistine combat strategy. In verse 18, we read something very curious. If, you're, if you understand Military tactics, this is very odd, very curious. The Philistines also came and spread themselves in the valley, not on the mountaintop, which would be an advantageous position, but in the valley of Rephaim. So they spread themselves out in the open valley, I believe, to show their numbers to intimidate David. Remember, all of the five kings came with their armies. So this was an intimidation tactic. Look at us how confident we are. Look at us how bold we are. We're in the valley. We're not up in the mountaintop. We're in the valley. Come on and get us. Come and get us. Because we're here and we're going to wipe you out. But what they didn't understand is that numbers do not matter when it comes to fighting against God. Not 87,000 Not F-15s. God is not concerned about how many wicked men and nations galvanize themselves together against Him 
And if God is not concerned, neither should we. To him, they are simply a drop of a bucket. Now you know there's a common phrase, a drop in a bucket. But if you drop enough drops in a bucket, the bucket fills. But that's not what God says. They're the drop of a bucket. In other words, the drop is at the lip of the bucket, ready to fall into the dry desert earth to never be seen again. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 15 tells us this, Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Secondly, the Philistines assemble in a valley. Again, a bold move. Placing themselves in a vulnerable position tactically, but on the surface, maybe they thought Israel would seem it to be a reckless move, but that was really a calculated, cunning tactic showing that they were unafraid, ready for battle. Thirdly, as with all locations, this one also is providentially orchestrated and named for a particular purpose. It seems as if the Philistines chose this place of Rephaim because the name Rephaim is the Hebrew word, comes from the Hebrew word, from the word Rapha, which actually means to invigorate. As in, is in the rousing up of a giant. To invigorate a giant. That's what the word means. Invigoration as someone would invigorate a mighty man, a giant. Now perhaps in choosing that area, perhaps the Philistines chose this place as a reminder of what David did to their giant by defeating him and wanted to invigorate Goliath's memory and courage against Israel. I remember when I played lacrosse, every time we were going up against the opposing team, the day before we would, we would run our sprints and at the end of the, the sprint, at the end of the line, we would scream out the name of, of, of the school. And then we'd run back to the other line, scream out the name of the school. Perhaps they were screaming out, Goliath, be invigorated with the memory of Goliath. But what is interesting here is that the giant that will be actually invigorated is not Goliath at all, but Yahweh, who is the true champion. Now, the root word also, if you break down this Hebrew word, Raphaim, meaning to invigorate, and then the root word, Rapha, Rapha is sometimes translated as to mend or make whole, or even to cure, to bring together, to mend something, to bring something together, or to cure. Now perhaps the Philistines also hoped to mend their situation by solidifying their stronghold now that David was king. As with the original name Rapha, to cure or make whole, the hope of the Philistine cure against the humiliation afflicted upon them by Israel did not turn out the way that the Philistines expected. It never turns out the way that the Philistines expect, especially when you have a faithful king and a faithful army. Perhaps the curing or the mending was not so much for the benefit of the Philistines that they would be mended or they would be cured or protected from having the land holdings taken from them, but rather the curing or the mending was for Israel. What God was going to do in Rephraim was to reestablish Israel's land holdings by making the nation of Israel whole. Once again, they would be cured, they would be mended, they would be made whole once again under the king, under David the king. So seeing the situation develop, David does exactly what David had done in the past. Whenever he was faced with difficult decisions, he would look to God. 
He looks to God for direction because he would dare not go against the Philistines unless he knew it was from the Lord. And in this case, the Lord gives him the immediate go-ahead. And David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to the Philistines? Wilt thou deliver them into mine hand? And the Lord said unto David, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into thine hand. That's all that David needed. And this is what a faithful warrior does. He looks to his commander for direction. So upon hearing this, David wastes no time. He goes to the stronghold of Baal Perizim, and from that platform, he engages the enemy. We see this in verse 20. And David came to Baal Perizim, and David smote them there, very clearly, very simply. And that's what he did. He just whooped them and said, The Lord hath broken forth upon mine enemies before me. Notice he gives glory to God. As the breach of waters, therefore he called the name of that place Baal Perizim. But David doesn't simply engage the Philistines and defeat them. He does what every good Christian warrior does. He destroys their false gods. He destroys them by fire. This battle is fleshed out again in First Chronicles chapter 14, which tells us that this battle, this is an indication that this battle was of great importance. Not only is it here, but it's fleshed out in more detail in 1 Chronicles chapter 14. Now the books of the Chronicles of the Kings document the important events in history, in the history of Israel's nation. And so to have this battle documented in two places means it holds great significance. Consider the account from 1 Chronicles 14, which is the same as 2 Samuel chapter 5. Beginning in verse 10, we read this. And David inquired of God, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines, and wilt thou deliver them into mine hand? And the Lord said unto him, Go up, for I will deliver them into thine hand. So, verse 11, They came up to Baal Perizim, and David smote them there. Then David said, God had broken in upon mine enemies by mine hand, like the breaking forth of water, same language as Second Samuel. Therefore they called the name of that place Baal Perizim. And when they had left their gods there, here's the addition. David gave a commandment and they were burned with fire. All of the idols that the Philistines left were burned with fire. David confesses, first he confesses of the ease by which he had defeated the Philistines as a result of God's work. He broke up upon them like waters, breaking forth of like waters. He uses this analogy of waters to signify judgment as in the days of Noah. God had broken in upon mine enemies by by mine hand like the breaking forth of waters, of waters of judgment, a flood of God's wrath. In 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles, we are then told that David gives the commandment to burn all the idols of the Philistines after they had fled from their defeat. And when they had left their gods, David gave a commandment and they were burned with fire. Now here we see David once again being very obedient to the law of God since Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 5 and verse 25 give very explicit instructions to burn the pagan idols after the battle is won. Deuteronomy 7, 5 and 25. But thus shall ye deal with them. Ye shall destroy their altars and break down their images and cut down their groves, and burn their graven images with fire. The graven images of their gods shall ye burn with fire. Thou shalt not desire the silver or gold that is on them, nor take it unto them, lest thou be snared therein, for it is an abomination to Yahweh thy God. A total decimation 
no toleration, no pity, no mercy, but rather a total annihilation. The fact that Israel was able to confiscate the Philistine idols after the battle tells us that the Philistines had a custom of bringing their idols to the battle as a good luck talisman. They left them on the field after they were destroyed. Their superstition was a typical pagan practice akin to making the sign of the cross or kissing a medallion of some sort before going into a battle or a sporting event. They would bring their idols, they would parade their idols onto the battlefield, partially to intimidate their enemy. So this was used as an intimidating tactic used to strike fear into the heart of their enemies. And this is what Israel did in the past when they mistakenly, wrongfully brought the ark of God into the battle against the Philistines while Eli was priest. They were doing what pagans did. And it was for this pagan practice that God had the ark captured by Israel's enemies in order to shame Israel and teach them a lesson for following the ways of the wicked. Because only a pagan, only a pagan entity brings their idols into a battle. The true saint only goes into battle with God. That this idea of bringing idols into the battle by the pagans, we saw this most recently when Potus addressed his enemies by parading military guards amidst a blood-red backdrop. He was bringing his idols into the battle, declaring battle in order to intimidate the people of God. Clearly, an intimidation tactic used by pagan kings and pagan nations. David then gives the Philistines a dose of their own medicine. He takes their idols and burns them. And this is how we destroy the idols of the secular, anti-Christian, God-hating, libertine reprobates. We set their idols on fire with the word of God's condemnation. We set the word of God upon them in judgment since the word of God is as a fire that devours and as a hammer that breaketh the hardest of heart into pieces. We use the word of God We take back what has been taken from us. David's actions against the gods of the Philistines, however, further infuriated them. So David goes against the Philistines and he wipes them out. So you think what they would do, and he burns their idols. You you would think, okay, we lost, we're going back home, we're going to lick our wounds. Not so. Not so. They were so infuriated, these Philistines were so infuriated Instead of learning from their earlier mistakes that you cannot go against God and win, the Philistines remain relentless. And so they set out to engage David and the nation of Israel once again. Notice verse 22. And this is where it, where it gets incredibly crazy. Why would they do this? They just got wiped out. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread themselves in the valley of Rephaim. Why? Why were they willing to suffer another defeat? Well, obviously they didn't think they would. Why not just go home and be satisfied with what they had? Now, there are a number of reasons for their temerity and stubborn resolve. First, within the nature of the unregenerate, there is an unquenchable thirst for power and total dominion over their enemies. Like the Philistines, they are relentless. The Philistines were such a people, tenacious to satisfy their lusts. But this desire stems from something more than a simple desire to rule other nations geographically, economically, or militarily. There is also, secondly, a theological reason. The Philistines wanted to dominate Israel since Israel represented the true God and David represented the true Messiah. It is therefore in the heart of unregenerate man 
to subjugate any group, institution, or idea that represents God. That is why the church and the family are targeted. Because they represent God. And that means the marriage institution and the biblical family is going to be targeted along with the church and already has been for many years. But more than that, anything that God has either created or instituted will be fair game for the wicked. So anything that God has created or instituted will be fair game for the wicked and they will target that. Example, gender realities, logic, language, science, law, economics, the distinct notion of right and wrong. All of these things will be under attack. The Philistines were never going to stop. The state, the wicked, will never stop. Get that into your heads. The wicked will seek to destroy entirely and decimate the people of God and the testimony of the Christ. That's the situation that we face in our day, in our time, in our generation. The Philistines were never going to stop. They had to be destroyed. Their idols had to be burned and their memories stricken from the history of man. Third, the Philistines were also very religious. And their religion convinced them to the point where they would be willing to die to uphold their integrity, to uphold their religion, to uphold their desire for power. They would even go to the death, perhaps. The secular anti-Christian God-hating murderous libertines are extremely religious. They hold very strong philosophical and theological beliefs. And this anti-Christian belief position is what makes them so dangerous. And while they may not be ready to die for their beliefs, I can tell you this, they most certainly are ready to kill for them. Determined to defeat David, the Philistines set out for battle. And David, as his custom was, in his conviction, was to inquire of the Lord a second time. But this time, God gives them very different instructions. This time, God gives David very different and explicit instruction. Notice what he says, very curious. Beginning of verse 23, And David inquired of the Lord, when he inquired of the Lord, he said, Thou shalt not go up. Don't go head on. But fetch a compass behind them and come upon them over against the mulberry trees. And let it be when thou hearest the sound of a going in the tops of the mulberry trees that then thou shalt bestir thyself. For then shall the Lord go out before thee to smite the host of the Philistines. Very curious. Go around into the forest where the mulberry trees are and wait for a going and then you can go fight. So first God tells David to flank the army of the Philistines instead of engaging them head on. Now perhaps the Philistines were expecting a face-to-face battle. That's probably why they went back to the valley. They had made certain preparations for that kind of encounter and maybe they were even going to flank David. But whatever the reason, God wants David to change his strategy, his military strategy, in order to take the Philistines off guard. And this too is a lesson for us. We must be flexible in our strategies and tactics while advancing the kingdom. We cannot always attack the enemy head on. Sometimes we go in with a big head of steam and and, and it doesn't work. 
Sometimes we have to change our strategy and take them off guard. Craftiness, cunning, stealth, that may be the wiser move. And that takes discernment. Second, God tells David to flank them from the cover of the mulberry trees. Thou shalt not go up, but fetch a compass. In other words, go around, flank them, and come up upon them over against the mulberry trees. Go into the mulberry trees. David was told to use the perimeter of the mulberry forest to flank the Philistines in order to take them by surprise. Now in Psalm 84, the psalmist makes reference to the mulberry trees, but uses the Hebrew word baka, which is translated as weeping. This verse describes those who are blessed of God, who dwell in the house of the Lord, and the man who has his strength in Yahweh. The psalmist says that it is this man, whose strength is in God, who will pass through the valley of the mulberry trees, the valley of Baca, and make that area a wellspring of water. Notice Psalm 84, 5 and 6. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, And this is what David wanted. David wanted his strength, his military strength to be in God. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, in whose heart are the ways of them who passing through the valley of Baca, or the valley of the mulberry trees, make it a well, the rain also filleth the pools. Now, weeping is usually referring to repentance. So the psalmist is also saying that the weeping at Baca, notice, The weeping at Baca makes a wellspring of water. The rain fills its pools. And this seems even to be a reference to both the Lord Jesus Christ and the church relating to Jesus. This may refer to the time when Jesus wept over Lazarus or over Jerusalem, who symbolizes the redeemed of God. And since he is the tree of life, he may be referred to as the weeping mulberry trees in the same way as Jeremiah the prophet is often referred to as the weeping prophet. The elect of God can also be referred to as the weeping mulberry trees as a result of God's work upon them to sorrow over their sins with weeping. So he has all these connections with this idea of weeping and the mulberry trees. And so David is among the valley of the mulberry trees. He's told to go into the valley of the mulberry trees, ready to destroy as he compasses about, flanks the people of the Philistines in order to destroy them in the same way that Jesus weeps over Lazarus before he destroys sin, death, and the grave through the resurrection, bringing all of his people to repentance, that weeping by his grace. So there's all of these gospel connections. Now God tells David then that when he hears the sound, again, very curious, of a going? When you hear the sound of a going, if I told you, when you hear the sound of a going, you say, what's a going? The sound of a going is actually to be understood and translated as the sound of a troop or the sound of troops. In other words, what God is saying is, when I rustle the tops of the mulberry trees, it will sound like the marching of troops, which will cue you, David, as to when to attack the Philistines. And I will, through this going, through this sound, this rustling of the trees, this sound of troops, I will use that to intimidate the Philistines into thinking that there are so many more Israeli troops than expected and have them in fear. And it was at that point when David would stir himself up and courageously attack the Philistines because the Lord was going before him as a troop. And this fits with our conclusion that the mulberry trees referred to the people of God who have repented of their sins and who are now part of the Lord's army against the wicked of the world. 
So once David hears this, he obeys. And he attacks as the Lord had commanded. Verse 25, And David did so as the Lord had commanded him and smote the Philistines from Geba until thou come to Gezer. Now while the account of this event ends here, there's an additional statement given in 1 Chronicles 14, verse 17, which bears consideration. Now remember, these are the same battles. And the fame of David, because of this battle, because David trusted God, and David was able to be flexible in his strategies, and God was with him. Because of this battle, notice it says, and the fame of David went out into all lands, and the Lord brought the fear of him upon all nations. And this too is teaching us of a strategy. The church must once again be feared and her king honored. All we need to do is trust God. All we need to do is step out in faith. All we need to do is win a few battles. Let the people fear. Let the wicked fear. Let them run in terror. But the only way to reestablish that position of conquest, whether it's in our community, our state, or our nation, is to obey the precepts of Scripture and then execute the strategies given to us therein. Because obedience brings respect from God and power from the Almighty, resulting in influence in the world. It's the only way we win. The reason why the church has lost its honor and respect is because she has been following Saul and not David, Adam and not Christ. May God be pleased to help us in this sad time, to deliver us and grant to us courage, resolve and tenacity to do valiantly, even as David did against the weird Philistines. And this we shall do, God helping us, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.